Hey listeners, it's your host, Aisha. You're about to hear my chat with Dr. Robert Greenberg. You know those great courses you're always hearing so much about? And like, if you have a Roku, like me, you always see them advertised. And then you're like, hey, I should learn that thing. He's one of the people who actually creates those courses. And um, he will regale you with such witticisms as... These legends, you know, it, it, it occluded on his memory, as I say, like guano on seaside rocks. You got to <laughs> dig through a lot of crap to figure out what's really true or not. And you're going to be super entertained because not only is he entertaining, this is apparently one of the most entertaining topics in classical music, Mozart's death. When you are inevitably entertained out of your mind, go on over to iTunes and rate and review us. We appreciate it and you'll feel a lot better when you do. Okay, I'm out. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. It's how to be classical music rock stars, because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally, I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. Voice. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today, joining us from KQED in San Francisco, is Dr. Robert Greenberg. He's a best-selling. Good to be here. <laughs> hey, um, he's the best-selling creator of courses for the Great Courses series and the Teaching Company. He is a composer. He's got uh, his whole educational background is in music, and his BA from Princeton, as well as his PhD from UC Berkeley. Um, but for our purposes today, he's an educator. He's, um, he's recorded a 48-lecture course, actually, for the great courses called How to Listen to and Understand Great Music. And he's actually done 25 other courses by them. Um, now he has his own series of courses, which you can find online. And one of those is on Mozart. And we're going to focus on that today. Robert Greenberg, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you so much. That was an awful lot to... To, add, to say in one intro, but you, there was a lot to say. Um, I, I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about how you got into writing for The Great Courses, what The Great Courses are, is, and, um, and, then, and what you're doing now. Well, The Great Courses was originally called The Teaching Company, and it was founded by a gentleman from Houston oh. named Tom Rollins, who was a, a legislative assistant to Teddy Kennedy, a big... Washington guy, who suddenly had an epiphany back about 1990 that he wanted to create a company that could educate using videotapes and cassettes. Everyone told him that these were, these were entertainment media and you couldn't put content on them and he didn't believe anyone. <laughs> and he created this wonderful company uh, that allows high-end professors to come in and do the best they can in a beautiful studio situation. And lo and behold, he sold 11 years ago, but the company is still going strong. And I've made actually 30 courses oh, wow. for the great courses, of which 28 are in print. So I've been working with them since 1992. Mm. And uh, 
how I got involved with them was completely serendipitous, as so many things in our life are. I got my PhD here in in Berkeley at the University of California, Berkeley in uh, in 84. And I made the executive decision that I wasn't going to follow an academic path because I didn't want to leave the Bay Area. <laughs> so I started teaching adults and I got very good at teaching complex musical issues to people who didn't know jargon or couldn't read music. Hmm. And I was profiled in the Wall Street Journal because they claimed I was this music historian and composer who was teaching business execs about music. <laughs> Tom saw the article in the journal, hired me, and there you have it. I've been making courses for the great courses of the teaching company ever since. That's great. And so, but you're doing your own thing now. I am. You know, a technology allows us to do all kinds of things now. I can sit in front of my computer with a high-end microphone clipped on and make a very nice course myself. And since... The teaching company or the great courses can't do everything I want to do. Mm -hmm. It gives me an outlet. And so good for me. I can <laughs> do that much more. Well, so and, and where can people find these if they'd like to uh, take some? You can find the great courses stuff on the great courses website. Mm -hmm. uh, just just Google great courses. And for my stuff, just go to Robert Music. Robert Music, robertgreenbergmusic.com, and I know you're going to put a flyer up on your website, yeah. so if folks are interested in looking into this Mozart course, for example, which is 16 roughly 40-minute lectures about Mozart's last 10 years, Mozart mm -hmm. in Vienna, with lots of musical examples as well, I would ask folks to check it out. And yes, we definitely will post that information on our website, but uh, that is a great segue into what you came here to talk to us about today, which is, drumroll, Mozart's death. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, uh, we did a short about Mozart's death, and I think I sent that to you. Did you get you a did, chance to I listen to it? Okay, oh, yeah. so, so first, I don't know if that's a good place to start, but um, what did we get wrong? You mean historically, or what did you get wrong? <laughs> Just you didn't in get general. Any... No, you didn't get anything oh, wrong. Oh, that's fantastic. You, you came up with the, right, with the right diagnosis, which was, in all likelihood, rheumatic fever, a relapse of rheumatic fever. Yeah, yeah. But it's easy to get wrong. Yeah. So now that we've established that I am an expert on at least one thing in classical music... Um, you got it. <laughs> let's, let's start at the beginning. Why, why, first of all, are we so obsessed with Mozart's death still? Why does it have such a mythos surrounding it? Well, I think it's because of the mythos, first of all, that surrounds Mozart himself. Mm. He was probably the greatest child prodigy in music ever to exist. He made his mark starting at the age of six because he went on this long family trip. It lasted almost three years. And uh, the family toured all of Europe and the legend of this of this miracle monkey, as he was called, performing <laughs> blindfolded and being able to write down any music anyone sang to him or played to him, uh, being able to improvise as well as others could compose. This legend began very early, and Mozart was a legend. And unlike most such prodigies, he actually grew up to be even greater than he was as a child wow. and exceeded everybody's possible projection of what he could be. So I think we've always been enamored of Mozart, the tragedy of his very early death. He was about a month and a half shy of 36, so he was 35 when he died. The tragedy of this early death is, is just so monstrous. He was really just hitting his stride when he died. 
that that also adds fascination. Why should a seemingly, seemingly hale and hearty person uh, die so young, especially from a family that tended to live much longer? Mm -hmm. And then starting in 1830, uh, there were rumors of nefarious activities. Actually, the rumors started right after he died, but they weren't given any credence until roughly 35 or 40 years after he died, that perhaps it wasn't a natural death after all. Mm -hmm. So given the mystery of Mozart as the prodigy, as this extraordinary composer of unworldly music, which he was, you know, after he died, some of the pundits were saying he wasn't even a human. He was an angel sent down by God to lead humanity to a paradise through his music. Wow. He was called the child Christ of music. Oh my gosh. I mean, all this... This, these legends, you know, it, it, it occluded on his memory, as I say, like guano on seaside rocks. <laughs> you got to dig through a lot of crap to figure out what's really true or not. There was, there was a Mozart mythology, the likes of which not even Beethoven experienced. And this mythology makes him a kind of superhuman. And as a result, his, his young death becomes super mysterious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's kind of like the death of uh, James Dean. There's something about... <laughs> You know, d dying in the in the midst of your greatness. Correct, yeah. and that's a that's a great comparison. He's just so shrouded in, um, again, mythos. Mm -hmm. Let's dig into that a little bit. Let's talk about. I mean, there was a whole thing with Pushkin and Salieri, right. and, and and let's go into all of that and and how much and in how many ways people have gotten this sort of wrong. <laughs> So he died on December 5th of 1791 after having been sick or at least in bed now for 15 days. There was speculation because his body blew up. It was kidney failure and, and as a result it was uh, fluid retention. But there was speculation even then that maybe maybe he'd been poisoned. Why else should someone who, who's just gone through the greatest success of his adult life, meaning the premiere of his uh, opera, The Magic Flute, mm. why should this suddenly happen? Yeah. But no one gave it any credence, really, because none of his symptoms corresponded with anything that would have corresponded with the kind of poisons that were available at the time. And then in 1823, so this is, what, 32 years after he died, his colleague, Antonio Salieri, who was at that point 73 years old, quite elderly for the day, was hospitalized with dementia. And the day after Salieri was hospitalized, he took the knife that they gave him uh, to eat his food with uh, and tried to slash his wrists. Whoa. And he tried to commit suicide. He'd been hospitalized. He was demented. And in his dementia, he said, I killed Mozart. I'm so sorry. I killed him. I killed him, blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, he didn't kill him. And of course, when he was lucid, he went back and said, I cannot believe I said that. I didn't kill Mozart. I would never do such a thing. I love right. him. Just kidding. Yeah, right. Yeah. My, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> but it rang a bell for political mm. reasons as well. You know, Mozart was a homegrown Austrian composer who mastered Italian opera in a way that not even the Italians could write it. And there was a tremendous tension always between German-speaking musicians and Italian-speaking musicians, especially given that Italian-speaking musicians controlled the music industry in Austria. Hmm. So there was always this internecine warfare. You know, there were always cabals between the Italians and the Austrians. And so this theory that an Italian had offed Mozart really took off because it had 
just the kind of frisson, you know, just like mm-hmm. it resonated with the spirit of the time. Yeah. But again, it would have passed into obscurity if not for the Russian playwright Alexander Pushkin, who in 1830, seven years after Salieri made these claims, wrote a play called Salieri and Mozart. And the whole point of the play was not about Mozart. Mozart is rendered as a cardboard figure. Mm. It's just that Salieri, who has been a godly man, who has worked his tail off his whole life, who thinks he's finally mastered his art, meets this young whippersnapper and realizes how utterly inadequate he truly is. He's nothing but a mediocrity. Mm -hmm. And this becomes the reason for Salieri wanting to off Mozart. Mm. It was Pushkin who gave us the reason behind it, the the cause. Uh And then this was turned into a opera in 1898 by Rimsky-Korsakov, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. And then, of course, it became the backbone for the uh, Peter Schaeffer play, which became the movie Amadeus in 1984. Wow. Oh, Mozart! Mozart! So, you know, we want someone to blame. That's We're great at blaming. If well, and we it's a great blame, story. Under, oh, it's a great, and it's a story that doesn't let the facts get in the way. Yeah. And it also allows us to blame someone, and it has that political edge as well. Austrian, German-speaking mm-hmm. versus Italian, Italian-speaking. Yeah, well, it's so, kind of like that whole thing where, you know, the the, the all of the different uh, pop stars, rock stars, who died at the age of 27, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, um, oh my gosh. Uh, Morrison. Yeah, thank you, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and there, there are so many in the same way that, that, that Pushkin t- turned this into such a tale. Like so many people have turned those deaths into, into these tales, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, they're on the pages of the, Sightings around the front of the National Enquirer and things like that, you know. Um, right, Elvis because, is in the room. El- yeah. Elvis is not dead. Yeah, yeah because, yeah. And, I, and I think maybe some of that comes from the fact that it's just so hard to accept that Jim Morrison died a, a bloated alcoholic in a bathtub, you know, as opposed to him living on and being this beautiful person that he was at one point. It's really hard for, I think, the cultural... I don't know, memory to to accept that in a Correct. Way. You know, I mean, yeah. Elvis dying bloated on the toilet. So much bloat, right? Well, yeah, there you have it. And yeah. when, when we age, we bloat, at least we men do. But yeah. I, I think your point is really well taken, and that is we don't know these people as real people. We know them as musicians who created this extraordinary art. And we can't reconcile the mundane aspects of their death, the banality of their deaths, mm-hmm. with the seemingly mystical and magical art they created. It, right. just, it right. just is all wrong. Right. And, be, and I think that's in part because of what it says about our own finitude, our own mortality. Our own mortality. You know, that, exactly. That there's this lovely idea in, in this whole creating of mythos about people like Mozart that, you know, um, that, that even though our bodies might not live on, our our greatness does sometimes. You know, some the, some people 
rise up and, and our greatness lives on throughout history. And, and the, But the idea that the actual people died in this, as you said, this really banal sort of way, it just doesn't jibe with that concept. And Right, know, but, it's, but, yeah. it's a, but one of the things I do in my teaching, because I think it's super important, is I try to knock down the mythos, knock down, t- take these people off the pedestals. Mm-hmm. They're people just like us who were terrifically talented but worked very, very hard, and in doing that, created a body of art that allows us to experience their lives and their reality through that music. Mm-hmm. But if we're treating them like myths, if we're treating them like gods, if we're not treating them like real people, we're always at a distance from the music. We can't yeah. touch it. Yeah. We can't make it our own. And by making it our own and internalizing it, our lives are improved a thousandfold. So right. the, the myths have to be knocked down and we have to accept these people, these composers, these wonderful musicians as flawed human beings just like us. And once we do that, mm-hmm. the music becomes personal. Yeah, yeah, stop putting them up on a pedestal and accept that, that like us, they were, they were humans. They were just extraordinary humans. But humans with all the same flaws we have. Exactly, exactly. So I think, and I also think it's just so interesting that Pushkin, you know, I don't know if our listeners have, lis- have read Pushkin, but kind of a great writer. So I can, I can see how with the kind of writer that Pushkin was with his own fame and how widely read he is or was back in the day you know how that could really get that sort of ball rolling mm-hmm. i think it's i think it's that's really interesting too that, that his own force and power as an author was behind that you know and it fed into the growing Mozart myths that were developing across the span of the 19th century that he wasn't just a human being, that he was an alien, that he was autistic, <laughs> that he was God's own child, and so forth. It, it just supplied, yeah. it just was another layer of myth. Yeah. Okay. We've, we've talked about what didn't happen. <laughs> what, uh, and what, you know, Salieri... Clearly, he was he was demented. He he made this this false claim. So, you mentioned a little bit about what actually did happen, which is that Mozart was lying there in his sickbed. He's he's all bloated from whatever's going on with him. So so yeah, what what are the details of what actually happened with his death? First, I would just add that there have been over over a hundred and fifty different diagnoses suggested for why he died. I mean, this is, you want to talk about another garden industry aside from the assassination? Everyone and their brother-in-law every few years seems to come up with another reason why he died. But if we cut to the chase, and we probably should, he died of a recurrence Mm. of rheumatic fever. As a child, he was very small, very sickly, constantly ill, although people in those days were constantly ill with one thing or another. But no one thought he was going to live very long because he was so frail and so sickly as a child, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. At least twice, but maybe as many as four times, he suffered rheumatic fever, uh, which mm-hmm. is brought on, these relapses are brought on by some sort of bacterial uh, infection, you know, like strep throat. Uh, something on those lines. And mm-hmm. they can be devastating. And typically, they become less frequent in adulthood unless one is going through tremendous stress. And indeed, Mozart was going through tremendous personal stress between 1788 
1791. So he would have been 34 in 1788. How many times have we heard, oh, Mozart, he was, he was a rock star. No, he wasn't. Or Mozart, he was the popular music of his time. No, he wasn't. Mozart was a complicated composer who wrote long, difficult pieces. That famous yeah. quote from the emperor, my dear Mozart, what a lovely opera, but so many notes, so many <laughs> notes. That was at the premiere of the abduction from the Seralium, and Mozart's response was exactly as many as were necessary, sire. <laughs> but it's true, Mozart's music was not the mainstream of his time. If he wanted to dumb it down, he could have made a fortune, but he refused to dumb it down. And so he wrote music that was considered by his contemporaries to be too long, too complex, uh, too continuously involving. You know, there were no passages where one could relax in anticipation for a more complex passage. Everything in Mozart's music, from themes to transitions to developments, is, is stockpiled with a constant and never-ending sense of invention. So you have to listen really carefully. Well, this wasn't typical for the day. I think it's hysterical that today we hold Mozart as the pinnacle of the classical style, where his contemporaries felt he was an outsider. One of the few people who got wow. Mozart was Haydn, who was a brilliant composer and realized that Mozart had more in his little finger than he had in his whole body. And Haydn was yeah. elegant enough to be able to admit that. But back to Mozart. By 1788, his music was on the outs in Vienna, which is amazing. I mean, it's, it's hard to even mm -hmm. believe he wasn't being hired to write music. Very few people were coming to his subscription concerts. Yes, he should have moved, wow. but he refused to move. In 1789, Austria got into a war with the Ottoman Turks. Strict austerity measures were put down in Vienna, which meant closing most of the theaters, closing the opera houses. Well, it doesn't take a lot to figure out that a professional musician is going to have a hard time making a living when all your venues are closed. Yeah. So he and his wife, who always overspent, they both were very, very free with their money, started borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and then borrowing on this and borrowing on that. They would pawn their belongings, then borrow on the pawn tickets, and they just built a mountain of debt. He started getting sick because of this. His wife started getting sick because of their fear and their worry. He started having affairs. Because of the stress. You know, terrible stress. His, he was having affairs. His wife was angry at his affairs. She was probably having her own affairs. The marriage was starting to, to crack and break. They had seven children together, but only two of whom survived. They lost another little girl named Teresa in the summer of 1788. I mean, his world was falling apart. And this mm -hmm. is the stress he saw his career going down the tubes. He was so deeply in debt, he'd never get back out again. He's begging everyone for money. It was really unfortunate. Yikes. And that stress probably, probably knocked down what resistance he had left to the kind of bacterial infections that would trigger the relapse of, uh, of rheumatic fever. And that's what happened in the fall of 1791. Wow. And, um, but what I want to know is why should we believe this version of the story. Oh, because it's true. <laughs> uh, even even in Mozart's day, uh, we have, for example, uh, the I forget his name, but the person who was in charge of, of the medical institutions oh, right. in yeah. Vienna in the 18 teens and 20s, going on the record, talking about what killed Mozart is killing people today, too. The same, the same fever that killed Mozart is killing people now, too. It was mm. pretty well understood. I mean, they didn't know what rheumatic fever was then. That name didn't exist. Mm. But 
it was understood what its symptoms were, and most folks felt that that's what was going on at the time. His, his, uh, his symptoms correspond with the kind of bacterial infection and then the kind of renal failure, kidney failure, and what we would expect to happen to someone who was suffering from a relapse of, uh, of rheumatic fever. Mm. And then they did, of course, on the, on the night, on the evening of, of December 4th, he was so sick and apparently going. They did what they always did in those days when they didn't know what to do. They bled him. Ugh. They bled him a uh-huh. tremendous amount. Man. And, uh, and then he had a stroke. His blood pressure went so low he had a stroke or a cerebral hemorrhage. And that was the immediate cause of death because mm. he died very early in the morning of December 5th, just about four or five hours after the bleeding. Wow. But all the symptoms correspond to rheumatic fever. Uh, all of the important medical memoirs from the time indicate that there was a lot of rheumatic fever present, and a lot of these memoirists were referring to the same disease that killed Mozart. Uh, these, there was no mystery. You know what it is? It's what we were talking about before. It's, it's that no one wants to admit such an extraordinarily great talent plucked from us in his prime mm-hmm. could possibly die of something so banal Mm-hmm. As, as, as a streptococcal infection that triggers rheumatic fever, that then you have a brain hemorrhage because of the bleeding, and then they die. Well, it just it doesn't make any sense. And, and I would tend to agree with you, but there's also, it's one of those fuzzy things, because I also read that, that on his deathbed, he was actually claiming and sa- saying to the people around him, that that he had been poisoned. That is not entirely accurate. Hmm. According to his wife, Constanzi, uh, during the summer and fall, before he took ill, according to her, he was saying, after he'd been commissioned anonymously to write his requiem, he was claiming that he'd been commissioned to write his own death music because someone was poisoning him with aqua tofana, Mm. which is what she claimed he claimed he was being poisoned with, which was a, basically a cosmetic, an Italian cosmetic made out of antimony, mercury, and lead. But none of his symptoms correspond with aqua tofana poisoning. Mm. And in fact, Costanzi said a lot of things after he died that were simply untrue. You know, she outlived Mozart by many, many decades, and she got rich off of her dead husband's music, and she remarried, and the guy she remarried, a guy named Nissen, wrote a biography of Mozart, the first big biography, and one that used first-hand sources like Constanzi. Well, she spent the rest of her life turning Mozart into a clown uh, who was responsible for everything, and by doing so, turning herself into a saint. It, was, it, t- it took 150, 200 years for us to clear all of this stuff up. <laughs> you know, this is the problem. I mean, I, I think about Stalin's famous line, although I'm sure other people said it before Stalin. You know, the, the victors write the histories. Well, the living also write the histories. The mm. dead can't write the story. And poor Mozart, everyone wrote about him except Mozart. So we can't believe what Constanzi says. And that's where that story of I'm writing the Requiem as my own death piece because I know I'm being poisoned. That was Constanzi's story. And Uh frankly, it doesn't hold water. So the moral of this story is 
go out and listen to your course and or read some books on the topic before uh, <laughs> believing the fiction that surrounds yes, it. Yes, indeed. And, yes, indeed. And, yeah. and when you next read another theory on Mozart's death, take it with a big grain of salt. A big ol', big ol' grain of salt. All right. Well, Dr. Robert Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us on The Classical Classroom today. This was really fun. My pleasure. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. Follow our social media there with slavish devotion. Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to rate us and review us on iTunes to experience a zing of good feeling. Thanks to audio producer Todd Wolfie Holslander for making us sound nice. Thanks to Mark Claudio for his piercing Salieri eyes. Thanks to Dr. Robert Greenberg for being here today. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. <laughs>